Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to answer the question, why do we have sports hall of fames? It's, it's multifaceted, that there's the need to celebrate and memorialise the greats of the game. It's a way of mythologising, it's evoking a lost past. And in a deeper and more meaningful sense, it's a way to debate what the sport stands for. By that, what I mean is that it underpins in a bricks and mortar location, a foundation myth that roots the sport in an imagined, idealised past. Often it's rural. It's unassuming, it's modest. So with the Basketball Hall of Fame based in Springfield, Massachusetts, it's you know, Naismith's school gym where you know the rules were you know, codified, where the sport was created. With the Baseball Hall of Fame in upstate New York in Cooperstown. The idea of you know the feel, the pasture where Adam the Doubleday sat down and wrote the you know, rules of baseball. You have in the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. It's a used car dealership where the original founders of the NFL met to really create the league. And as a result, the Hall of Fame becomes a point being almost to, to forge a predestiny that acts as a seal of approval on the contemporary sport. In other words, from those humble origins, the sport was meant to become this huge. It was meant to become popular. It was meant to have all of these legends, all of these teams, all of these, you know, history. And as a result, you can put it into one building and then you can have a whole... celebration of the sport, artefacts, great players, you can have speeches, that so many different opportunities to argue about the sport, to really try and understand the sport better. Now for me, I see Hall of Fames as almost being a tool of these Whig school of thought. The idea that history is simply a case of constant upward progression, that we're always going towards the sunny uplands, that there is progress being made. For me, also the most important Hall of Fame is the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think it's the one that there's the most meaning behind. With, with sort of European sports, you know, with cricket, with football, there are Hall of Fames, but I don't think they have the same meaning and legacy they're very much there's always a commercial element to it and it's a lot harder to really to create a hall of fame for an international sport so do you have the just the best of the best so the inner circle hall of fame so if you were to have a hall of fame for football how many people would you put in would you have a thousand? Would you put a hundred in? 
where would you locate this museum? Whereby, which becomes difficult, who would you vote for? How would we? Whereby with the American sports, because primarily they started as American sports, with leagues that were considered, and still are, the best in the world. So in other words, international came to America, rather than with football, which really started in England, and then Britain, and then spread out to the world. There's no centralised location that would be perfect for it. Mm. No, there's no one place where you could say that football or, you know, originated in the same way that American sports does. The juxtaposition, though, of the idea of the Hall of Fame as a sort of tool of the Whig school of thought is that baseball as a sport is probably one of the sports most prone to having sections of the media and fans wax lyrical the sport was infinitely better in the past the question is why is this so if the idea that hall of fames are places which are you know you're venerating the past but also offering the opportunity to the next generation to go on further to better what has come in the past to break the records to make history, to earn election, to join these legends. It really comes down to the fact that bat and ball sports are defined by numbers. So for this podcast, I'm mostly going to be focusing on cricket and baseball. So with baseball, you have numbers such as Babe Ruth's, 714 home runs in cricket you have Don Bradman's batting average of 99.94 so these numbers become a language and a frame of reference and so because you have all of these huge amounts of information from the very first leagues from the very first test matches all noted down for posterity you have a frame of reference and the numbers that become language. So in other words, when you say 714 to a baseball fan, they know exactly what it means, what it stands for. It's not just 714 home runs, it's the totality of Babe Ruth's career and how not just that he got that many home runs, that for a decent amount of his early career, he was a pitcher, he wasn't supposed to hit home runs. And how, in a, such a huge way, he Im- made home runs an important part of baseball. You know, with Don Bradman's batting average, it's just so high. It's so unimaginable that some one individual could average 100. 100 is the gold standard achievement in cricket. In other words, you can get five fours, and, and for a bowler that is important and that is special and it's tallied up but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head who has the most fifers in international cricket history the point is you can get a fifer and go for 200 runs you can still lose you can get five cheap wickets you there's that's not a guarantor that you've played well you might have been lucky 
whereby a century in its construction, you, you can't really have a lucky century. Because the amount of effort, the amount of time it takes to build an innings, even if you drop three or four times, that still means that within those time, within that those points of reference, you were still scoring runs, and to do so at the highest level under the most amount of pressure. And so, as it's a gold standard achievement, the idea is you're supposed to be when it's at your best, when the conditions are right, when you're in your perfect state, and for someone to then effectively be in that gold standard level their entire career. So at the beginning of their career, for the end of their career, during the decline phase, for the, the totality of it to effectively amount to being that good every single time, it's just almost unimaginable. And because you have all of this information, because you can compare what happened in 1882 with what happened in 1982, and this numbers and and the language that it creates, it allows for easy comparisons between the generation. And as a result, it creates gatekeepers. So in baseball, you have the BWAA, the Baseball Writers of America. They're the organisation that votes for the Hall of Fame, that allows you in the door, that considers you the for the highest honour the sport can offer. With cricket, you have wisdom, where, you know, if you're cricketer of the year for wisdom, it's an amazing achievement. You can only happen once in your career. And, you know, if it's not in wisdom, then it just doesn't count as a record. And how important it is for, you know, your hardcore, dyed-in-the-wall cricket fans to have, you know, bookshelves, just wisdom year after year after year. So if you ever have an argument about it, you go to wisdom and wisdom will basically provide you the answer. And so these guardians, these gatekeepers, they define and create the myths that build the game. In other words, when you're talking about Babe Ruth and Donald Bradman, they really come into the sport not at the beginning. So in other words, you know, by the time Babe Ruth made it into the big leagues, there'd been sort of 30, 40 years of professional baseball. And there'd been heroes before, Ty Cobb, Cy Young, great players. But they don't really have a, a frame of reference to the contemporary audience, to the kid that's just learning about the history of baseball. You know, with Cy Young at the beginning of his career, you know, the pitching mound wasn't 60 feet 6 inches. It was a lot closer. There was changes to the game. The game was still growing. And with you know, Bradman, they'd been cricket played for 50, 60 years at international level. And they'd been heroes before. But what they act as and what they fulfil is that elemental need in the sport to create these sort of semi-mythological characters. And they underpin the sport in the national consciousness. These individuals always come in some ways at a time of change. So the sport has been established. We know the rules. We know the where the teams are based. And all the other bits and pieces that the sport has already set up. 
it already has a fan base. But what Ruth and Bradman at their time is when things are starting to change in terms of you know technology. You have you know, the rise of radio, newspapers, moving pictures. In some ways, even the, the rise of sports writing itself, you know, getting quotes from the athletes themselves, the element of critical editorialising that make these individuals real in a way that their predecessors aren't. Their predecessors are people that you just have black and white photos. You don't have moving pictures of them. They're just they're characters in history books, whereby... You see, with you can see Donald Bradman batting. There's you know, only a limited amount of archive material, but it's there. You can see Babe Ruth hitting home runs, and what happens is their genius sets a standard, and that you put that right in the middle of any Hall of Fame, inner circle Hall of Fames, with records that just aren't ever likely to be. Beaten. In other words, the idea of anyone ever having a career where they can average 99.94, it's, it's possible, but it's improbable, verging on the point of impossible, that you could play 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 tests all around the world, that you'd have to average 100 in Bangladesh, in India, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka. But you'd also, you know, where the pitches are spinning, where it's 30, 40 degrees. But then you'd have to go to Australia and New Zealand where the pitches are hard and bouncy, where, you know, you're getting people bowling short at you at 90 miles an hour and averaging 100 there. And on the pitches of South Africa where they seem a little bit more but still have the bounce, that you'd then be able to still average 100 in the seeming conditions of England on a green pitch overcast day at Headingley and that you'd be able to play that much you know with the amount of cricket that's being played with T20s with 50 overs that you'd be ever able to have an athlete capable of doing that for such an extended period of time I mean even right now your baseline for upper level genius would be averaging 60 that's basically a full 40 runs below what Donald Bradman did as just as an average and what's sort of key importance is that with Ruth and Bradman is that you have their status of outsiders. So Bradman was an Australian from a rural background. You know, he was diminutive. You know, with Babe Ruth, he had this status of, you know, he immigrant background, immigrant heritage, a, a rags to riches backstory. And so what these characters, and they're different characters with different, but they're united in their genius. Now, Ruth's backstory, so he basically is the son of an Irish innkeeper, and he's a rambunctious child, and eventually they can't handle him, so they put him in a reform school where he's surrounded by, you know, lots of orphans, abandoned children, yet he has a family, they just can't look after him and don't want to look after him. And, you know, the issues that you had at the start of the 20th century with backlashes against immigrants and the, you know, the history of the 
Irish in America and in New York in particular. Babe Ruth's rise to fame, in some ways, is America coming to terms with itself. It served as a microcosm for the beginnings of the American century. I mean, the whole thing with Babe Ruth is this self-confidence. And he matched the post-First World War changes in society. You know, the stock market boom, the age of jazz, you had flappers, you... Of which baseball was a huge part of it. It's the rise of the sport to become the national pastime. As a really an example of burgeoning growth of American exceptionalism. The idea that instead of embracing cricket and trying to compete against the South Africans, the Australians, the English, to get into that sort of colonial mindset, they decided to create their own sport, a perfectly American ingenuity that would be uniquely American and would have American stars, of which Ruth was probably the, the shining example of that. With the idea of the outsider becoming, you know, with, the, with his big heart, his big personality and his sort of huge talent, becoming the face of baseball. Now, if you have to compare that to Bradman, it's creates far more international in outlook. So the idea that this, the, the greatest ever cricketer, was a small rural Australian in a sport that's history is colonial, that it was something that was you know, created, again, that was created and forged in you know, rural England that then basically got exported all across the British Empire and grew roots and that the concept of international cricket is basically you know colonies playing the old country I mean one of the sort of most famous cricket games and it it's effectively not an official cricket game but I think it's probably to someone who doesn't understand or doesn't follow cricket it's probably a great example of what cricket means especially international cricket is that there was a there was a village out in India during the colonial era and the administrators were and I'm probably paraphrasing and not getting it 100% right but the gist of it is that the the white administrators white british administrators need to levy some taxes and that the locals aren't particularly interested in paying. And so eventually they come up with a solution that they basically will have the white administrators will play the locals at cricket, whoever wins. If the English win and the, you know, the administrators win, the tax gets paid and gets levied. If the locals win, the tax doesn't get paid. And so this game takes on a hugely important moment in terms of self-determination and the locals eventually win. They make a film, there's been a film about it that's, you know, got pretty good reviews. And that in is a microcosm of what, what it is. It's self-identification. It's coming to the old country and winning. It's establishing your worth and your independence. And so for, and with cricket, there's always this sense of it being a class-orientated sport. 
that it's the you know the gentleman, the amateur versus the professional, and the sense that that while that is best, cricket brings people together of all classes, all races, different countries, different outlooks in the world, but it's still somewhat hierarchical that it's played in the public schools rather than the local schools. And for the symbolism of having the greatest ever player not coming from Great Britain, not coming from England, not being someone from the upper classes, but being this unassuming, small Australian who just grew up, you know, hitting a golf ball up against the wall and developing this just amazing technique and how and how his achievements will effectively last forever that as long as there is cricket he will be at the top he will always have those four numbers nine nine point nine four that average will probably never be beaten when you're talking hall of fames and inner circle hall of famers which is what bradman and Babe Ruth certainly are. Their talent and legacy becomes more universal and foundational to the sport and to the national culture for Australia in Bradman's case and Babe Ruth's American culture as a whole. Then of comparable greats of other eras. So there have been fantastic batsmen in England, in the West Indies, in South Africa. They were great players in Bradman's era. But they they don't have the symbolism and the significance. If you were telling both stories of both sports and you only had one person to do it in, you would likely pick Ruth and you would likely pick Bradman. Because everything else that comes out of their history, you know, with Ruth you have the situation with him joining the Yankees and the significance of the Yankees to the sport. With Bradman being part of several of the greatest Australian teams of all time and of the greatest of the sport as a whole and of being this and just setting the standards for all time. For me, the, the most enduring legacy of Babe Ruth is hope for greatness. The concept that he represents the first link in, in effect, an, an unbroken chain. That you have the great Yankee teams of Babe Ruth's era which then leads into the great Yankee teams of Joe DiMaggio. And when he retires, Mickey Mantle then becomes the great Yankee outfielder. And eventually when he leaves the sport, you then have Reggie Jackson takes his talents to New York City. And, you know, although Mattingly never wins a World Series, he continues the great Yankee legacy. And then at the end of his career, you then have the... Beginnings of the core four. You have Derek Jeter, who then leads to another period of just Yankee greatness. And the result being that Babe Ruth's almost, in some ways, the sort of progenitor of that. 
And with Bradman, you know, you have, he sets the bar and the all Australian batsmen follow in his footsteps and trying to match his achievements or continue the idea of the great Australian batsman. So you have Chapel then goes to Alan Border, Ricky Ponting, Michael Clark and Steve Smith, all of whom are building off of this foundational greatness. With Babe Ruth, you're encapsulating the the personal evolution. In fact, when he was a pitcher, he was well on his way to being a Hall of Fame pitcher with the Boston Red Sox, who were at the time the dominant team in the sports. And in a way, had he remained a pitcher, he would have carried on winning and would have eventually, I presume, and expect that he would have been... elected to the Hall of Fame and effectively then would have been largely lost to history. He would be just one more great pitcher of the 1920s, uh, you know, late 1910s and he'd be a plaque. He'd be one legend in a museum full of legends and he would just be consigned to, a, I suppose, a footnote. He would have been, oh, Babe Ruth, great left-handed pitcher, could hit a little bit, played in the outfield, and there were other hitters of other pitchers of the time who could hit a little bit, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as important as the role he has now, where his evolution from becoming a pitcher to then becoming this game-changing, sport-changing hitter, and as the progenitor of this you know, enduring Yankee dynasty. You know, the point was he wasn't the first person to start hitting home runs as you know with the from change from really the dead ball era where you know your legends were the likes of Ty Cobb who was just a fantastic hitter but wasn't really a power hitter you know his game was based on you know hitting the ball you know into gaps you know picking his moments bunting all of these you know very technical skills but they were skills that were honed in era when the ball you'd keep the same ball throughout the entire game, which would start being white and round by the end would be misshapen and dirty and you wouldn't be able to see it because the games were played during the day. So if it was an overcast day, you'd start you know, over you'd start with a sunny ball game at one o'clock in the afternoon with a white ball and by two o'clock in the afternoon you would have a dirty you know, mud-strewn, misshapen ball that would be coming out of the gloom of the clouds and would be harder to hit for any distance, and it was a low-scoring sport. So, in other words, the genius of Ty Cobb in getting runs and getting on base and stealing bases and using all of this strategy to really countermand all of the problems that you had trying to score runs in the dead ball era whereby once you started you know using fresh baseballs you then had a huge explosion in terms of you know offense and so while 
you know, there were other people that started hitting home runs maybe a little bit before Babe Ruth. He was in the vanguard of this live ball era. But he was the one that was really uniquely placed to assume the mantle of leadership through his personality, his drive. You know, the serendipity of location that he was just in the right place at the right time. You know, before he joined the New York Yankees, they'd been New York Highlanders, they played in small stadiums, they weren't important to baseball. New York, you know, American League baseball in New York wasn't particularly important. Where things were important was with really the Giants and to a lesser extent the Dodgers in the National League. And really, what the Yankees needed was the fame of Ruth the outfielder. The home run hitter. And they were willing to accept the baggage of his flaws that entailed with it. That he was... You know, an inveterate partier, that he was a womanizer, that, you know, there were things that had to be covered up. <laughs> Whereby the Red Sox, who sold Ruth to the Yankees in the, the famous trade, what they needed at the time was the genius of Ruth the pitcher. And as a result, they did not require <laughs> such largesse of disciplinary leeway. They'd had enough of Babe Ruth. He was becoming a problem. They wanted him to pitch. That was the way how they would get success. They would, didn't mind him playing outfield on his off days to help out the team. And in some ways, what that means is, is that the downfall of the Red Sox dynasty under with the owner, Harry Frazee, it was a failure of scale and to an extent a failure of imagination. Harry Frazee just did not have the money or the imagination to understand what having a dynastic baseball team in Boston would mean. In other words, they were already successful, they'd made money, but had, let's say, he stayed, had he become an outfielder with the Red Sox and they'd kept some of the better players that most of whom got you know, sold or traded to the Yankees, Boston, in some ways, could have become the, I suppose, the hub of baseball, where, and Fenway Park would have been the mecca, where, you know, in some ways, almost a little bit like, you know, Lord's Cricket Ground, like Wembley Stadium for football, where it would be seen as where legends were made. But Fenway Park had already been built and developed to a certain extent. Whereby, with the Yankees and the size of New York in comparison to Boston, Jacob Rupert, the owner of the Yankees, had the scale. He had the money that Frazee didn't have. And also the imagination to see what the, the Yankees could become. You know, New York City was a far more fertile ground for adulation and celebrity. And in many ways, it was a more fertile ground in the imagination of Americans across the country. It was the you know the cultural centre of the country, you know, financially with Wall Street and you know Madison Square Garden with you know where boxing was held, you know, massive, hugely important prize fights. You know, you have music with you know the jazz scene and the Harlem Renaissance, you had art, you had even in terms of architecture, the, the Empire State Building. So to then have this 
amazing figure, almost out of central casting, you know, the son of an immigrant from a reform school, who'd been a brilliant pitcher, who was now this transcendent you know, outfielder, who was changing the sport, you know, hitting just unimaginably long home runs, unimaginably large amounts of home runs. I mean, one of my favourite stats about Babe Ruth is one of his first years of being a full-time outfielder is that he actually hit more home runs individually than some teams did as a whole. And I think if you want to understand why Babe Ruth is still relevant now when there's been... You know, his record for home runs has been beaten twice when he's you know, becoming ever more a part of the past. Put it this way, had, had his career simply encompassed the Roaring Twenties, his mores and excesses would have been merely symptomatic of the era and therefore his inevitable downfall as a player would have mirrored the decline and downfall of the bull market and the Wall Street crash of 1929. So his legacy probably wouldn't be quite as valuable. So in other words, the Babe Ruth who ate loads of hot dogs, drank, stayed up all night, carousel with women, and then hit home runs during the day, would simply be just another element of the roaring 20s. And that when he fell, the market fell, and then you had this, you know, the, the Great Depression. But the fact that he's still a great player into the early 1930s, he became still an element, a beacon of hope. One of his famous quotes was when someone asked him about why he, his salary, which was huge, and obviously it was even more huge in the context of the beginnings of the Great Depression. They suddenly said, well, you earn more money than the president. And his response was, I feel I've had a better year than the president. So to have this celebrity who was known all across the you know, continental United States, his fame had even really passed into other parts of the world. People knew that there was this great home run hitter, great baseball player called Babe Ruth, who was you know, in some ways larger than life. So his celebrity... It, you can make that he was one of the first sporting celebrities, truly transcendent sporting celebrities. One of the things about is that he was almost the first superstar athlete that was in some way, shape or form commercialised. And some of it was actually quite deliberate and incredibly forward thinking. It, basically, his, he had a manager and which in of itself was you know a a new concept and so what he used to do was in all of the you know, abundant publicity all the the focus on babe ruth he would always have the babe surrounded by children and so in public appearances and in some ways that was the advent of public relations and commercialization of the athlete and it created such a positive, he just seemed like he was a big kid himself. And that he was just this almost innocent figure that was, you know, that inspired the awe of children and childlike wonder and just love for the sport. The fact that 
baseball was still benefiting from that. And the benefit that to Depression era America that having this you know, you know having this legendary figure who was whose greatness brought joy in such a tough period for just the everyday person. And the fact that baseball was still reaping the rewards of that, even now, and having him as this wonderful historical figure. I think shows you how important it is to celebrate and memorialise and mythologise these characters in the game. I think it's important now, really, to, in some way, shape or form, explain why bat and ball sports need these almost sort of semi-mythological milestone numbers. So, take Cy Young's win total. He is the most winningest pitcher of all time. You know, his career was sort of 20, 30 years of professional baseball. Really, that from the first beginnings of professional baseball to at the end of his career, when he was sort of setting the table for the next generation of stars, you know, Babe Ruth, when they sort of building stadiums. So like, with Yankee Stadium, because it's become such an important part of baseball history, because so many World Series, so many World Champions, Championships have been won there, and that Babe Ruth's hitting, you know, in calling it the house that Babe Ruth built, shows our need as sports fans for a bricks and mortar location for for places for for places that we can associate with greatness in other words before you built the bricks and mortar hall of fame in Cooperstown Yankee Stadium effectively was the hall of fame it was where Ruth had played, it was where DiMaggio played, it was where Gehrig played. All of the greats at some point and some of the greatest teams of all time, you know, the 23 Yankees, the 27 Yankees, had all played there. Some of the greatest baseball games of all time had been played there. Mm. And you can see how important it was to baseball fans of, of all stripes when eventually they knocked it down and they built the new Yankee Stadium, which is just effectively across the block from the old stadium. But it was just the emotion of knowing that this place where you know, Mantle had played, where Ruth had played. In other words, that the same physical location just covered all of these amazing moments and players. You know, Yogi Berra, you know, Thurman Munson, all of just these... Just the collective history in that one place. A way of just linking the past to the present. And so the numbers effectively become an unclimbable mountain of excellence that all must aspire to but inevitably fall short. So with Cy Young's 511 picture wins, if you were to start your career, even if you started at 18, if you were the greatest pitcher of all time in the modern game, to get 500 wins, you would have to win 20 times. 
a season, which would be you know, 20 times out of, let's say, 32 starts. So you'd have to, so if you won 20 games, which is just upper end of great, you would to get to 500 wins from the age of 18, you would have to win 20 times every single year for 25 consecutive seasons. From 18 to 43, you would have to be the best for a quarter of a century. And even then, you would still be 11 victories shy of Cy Young. That is how long, that's how great you would have to be. You couldn't be injured, you couldn't, your team couldn't be unlucky. You couldn't have a bad season. You know, the fact that the pitching itself is changing. So that Cy Young could pitch maybe three, four hundred innings every single season. Now, pitchers, you know, even with all of the all of the knowledge we have about science, nutrition, workout, all of the equipment we now have, in other words, test body fat and test endurance, everything, all of the nutrition, you you can now it's a struggle for pitchers to get to two hundred innings, and that's basically half of what Cy Young would do. And it's not just the fact that he would start 40 times in the season, where now people barely starting 30, that he would finish those. He would throw two, three, four hundred pitches in a game, and then two days later, pitch again. Which is just unimaginable. I mean, that was one of the, the amazing things about the old Yankee Stadium, was you were sitting there, and you were on the same field, with you know, effectively the same dimensions as when Ruth was there. So if you hit a home run into the you know, short porch in right field, that was where Babe Ruth hit his home runs. You get the same thing with cricket if you go to an old cricket stadium, you know, Lords, you know, some, you know, the SCG, Sydney Cricket Ground. That's where Bradman played. He, that was the wicket that he would have used. And the rules were broadly the same. You had fast bowlers, you had spin bowlers, you had it was a red ball. You wore you know white cricket. You wore cricket whites. You had a wooden bat that's round about the same sizes as Bradman used. And yet, you cannot replicate in the contemporary game the numbers that Bradman put up, the numbers that Ruth put up, that Cy Young did. <laughs> and with Bradman, I think if you want to really, I think understand. The impact that he had, that his genius had, you have to start with the Bodyline series of 1932 to 1933. <clears throat> with England and Australia, it's just the rivalry of all time. And Bradman would terrify the English. He was just unbeatable. He would just score in industrial amounts of runs he would you know no matter what England did they just could not get him out un until he'd put the game out of reach and England had a England create captain at the time so during that period the, the captain was effectively the player manager he would help select the team he would select the touring party he would select the 11 he would come up with the tactics and Douglas Jardim who was uh, Scott, knew that they were going to Australia. And obviously in the early 30s, travelling to Australia was arduous, it would take a long time. You only had... And Jardin decided that he was going to find a way to stymie and to stop Donald Bradman scoring runs. 
So he managed to get some footage of Donald Bradman batting. And so he would sit there in his house on this projector, just watching and watching as much as he possibly could find, anything he could find about watching Donald Bradman bat on film. And eventually, um, his daughter tells the story that he's sitting there one day and sees Bradman getting out to a short delivery. So for the non-cricket fans, uh, a short delivery is basically you, you're bowling and you try and hit the, the wicket round about halfway between where you bowled it, where the batsman is standing. And the idea is, is that you aim the ball for the upper body, so the torso, the head, so that your hands and your bat, you instinctively you know, use your hands and bat to try and get the ball away from your face. And therefore it just pops up in the air and a close capture gets you out. So effectively it's, it, there's, it's an element of danger to it. And obviously Donald Bradman and all of the critters of this time were basically going out wearing a white dress shirt, you know, some rudimentary gloves and a cloth baseball cap. That was it. There was no concept of arm guards or anything that would basically protect your upper body from the cricket ball, which is you know, same size, same hardness as a baseball and so eventually having seen this you know Jarling goes I've got him so he basically with a battery cottery of fast bowlers goes out to Australia where the pitches are and this was a period of time when cricket pitches were uncovered so they were open to the elements so if it was hot the pitch would basically get dry and very rock hard at which point you're bouncing it would go high and hard and fast and so he set up the leg side trap so effectively the bowlers would bowl at Bradman's head with the idea that he would eventually pop the ball up and the five or six close catches in and around the bat would then you know take the catches and get Donald Bradman out because they have and England had fast bowlers and specifically Howard, Howard Larwood who were able to do it who were able to over after over in the blazing sun in the hot Australian conditions were able to keep doing it and do it accurately enough and the plan worked it got Bradman out very quickly it got spooked the rest of the Australian cricket team and in some ways it was basically dangerous it was skirting the rules And violating, in the wider sense, the sugenerous notion of fairness and good play that cricket is supposed to embody at its heart and its core belief system. Uh, to to non-cricket fans, I guess the best way of putting it is the, the concept, the statement, it's not cricket. I'm, one of my favourite examples of this is the Austin Powers film, where... Um, Elizabeth Hurley's character kicks a henchman in the nuts. And basically, Austin Powers is like, well, that's just not cricket. That's just not fair. That's not a good thing to do. And so basically what happened was is that the Australian crowds and the Australian government, the media, and the, just the people, the man on the street, was completely and utterly outraged by this. Now, yes, England were winning, and their hero was basically getting out. And it was just... The possibility was is that if there was... You know, if you got hit on the head by a cricket ball, you could be killed. If you got hit in the heart, you can be killed. 
it was so dangerous. And so the Australian Cricket Board and the government effectively started communicating with London and the MCC, the Marlebone Cricket Club, who were based at Lord's Cricket Ground, who were the who were the runners and the arbitrators of the sport, who were in charge of you know, dealing with the rules, and they basically get messaged by the Australian Cricket Board and government saying, this is happening, this is dangerous, this is against the concept of fair play, we want you to order this to be stopped or outlawed. And effectively the MCC come back and say, we've gone through the rule books, as far as we're concerned, it's not breaking any of the rules, England are more than you know, capable of using this method. It's not against the rules, we don't consider it cheating, get on with it basically. And the Australian government started to basically put pressure on the government, the British government, to say, we are outraged. We, you know, we are going to break off diplomatic ties if this continues. I mean, the players, were, you know, the crowds were getting angrier and angrier. And the possibilities that there would be riots, that they would storm the pitch, and it was really, it was about as close to an international diplomatic incident as cricket ever got to this point. And this just, and in some ways for me, it's the sort of the turning point where cricket became a modern sport. It was brutal, win at all costs, professional sport. It was a way of stopping a transcendent athlete whose genius had had ended up personifying the hopes, the expectations, the the dreams of his country. The sport didn't modernise overnight, but it was the seed for the countries that play cricket, so India, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the emerging nations that you know, eventually started playing the game, you know, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh. It became the struggle for political power in the administration of the game. On, on a basic level, respect on the field. You know, the struggles that Australia had and the outrage was really, you know... 30 years, a couple of generations later, in the struggles the West Indies had to, you know, be respected, to, you know, not suffer racism, to to be taken seriously. One of the, the stories, the struggles within West Indies cricket was that they always would have a white captain. They could have black players, but there had to be a white captain. That was just the way how it was supposed to be. And the battle to get a black captain to say that we are more than that you know, a black man should be respected and should be able a black you know, West Indian Caribbean cricketer should be able to be the captain of of the islands. And the culmination of that struggle was in the dominance that the West Indies had of cricket from really the mid nineteen seventies until the early 90s. You know, for me, international cricket is in many ways a form of cultural self-expression that has superseded the colonial settlement and structure that had exported and implanted the game 
across the globe in in the colonies of the British Empire. With the enduring popularity and expansion of the game, a game that at its heart has a veneration of tradition and history, is testament to the strength of cricket's culture. So you have the immortal names of Bradman, Garfield Sobers, Sir Garfield Sobers, you know, W.G. Grace, and their exploits, they serve as an inspiration to the next generation of cricketers. I mean, the Bodyline series, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Bodyline series is that although the MCC backed the England cricket team to the hilt while the, the series was going on, really, at the end of the series, Harold Larwood, the fast bowler, who had done nothing more than what his captain had told him to do so, and who had done brilliantly well while doing it. And it's important to note that Larwood was the son of a Nottinghamshire miner. So he wasn't someone who was in the upper strata of you know, British society. And he ended up in a way becoming the, the full guy. You know, he doesn't play for England again. He ends up really being shunned. And because I think in some ways he just, it was easy for him to be the person that effectively caught the, the blame for it. And so eventually, you know, wasn't particularly venerated in this country. And eventually, and in the irony of all ironies, ended up moving and spending the rest of his life in Australia. Quite happily accepted by the local people who had, during his actual nascent England career, had wanted to, you know, physically harm him. And that, you know, part and that Jardin, in a way, his reputation sort of becomes a little bit blackened. He's a sort of black sheep of England cricket captains. And it's almost always sort of slyly mentioned that he was Scottish rather than English. And as a result, maybe more hard-nosed than yeah, an, an, an English cricket captain might not have done, created and might not have implemented body life. While there is a Cricket Hall of Fame, I don't particularly put much stock in it. I think what really encapsulates Cricket's Hall of Fame is it's not something that can be put into a bricks and mortar museum. It's far more in the debates you would get in Wisdom, the debates between cricket fans all across the globe. Know, in India and Australia, all of these different places that are you know thousands of miles apart, spread all across the the globe, different cultures, different ideas, and what their view of cricket is and what it means to them. Like one of the greatest books about cricket was um, C. L. R. James, who was from the Caribbean, who was a um, Marxist, and he wrote a fantastic book called Beyond. Beyond a boundary, where he really went into his own personal sort of memoir and what his own views of cricket and of that of the region, and it's a, a fabulous book. <laughs> and so, for me, what the Cricket Hall of Fame really is is the de facto Cricket Hall of Fame is Lord's Cricket Ground because it's been there since the, the first embryonic stages of the game, and therefore, all of the greats have played there, all the great West Indian teams, all the great Australian teams, 
and it is such a tremendous honour for everyone to play at what is the, the home of cricket. And you walk out there and you, know, you have the pavilion that's been there for decades, hundreds of years. And, and you can feel the history in it. And you know that, let's say, the Bradman Invincibles of 1948. I think it's hard to put into words through just pure statistics just how good that team was. Is that they went undefeated throughout the entire tour of England and Scotland. I think they played in Wales as well. So they played 31 first-class games. So that is games against professional outfits that were marked down and noted for history and that counted towards records. These weren't friendlies. So they not only played the England cricket team, they went all across the country playing the best counties. And they didn't lose a single match. There was supposed to be 112 days play scheduled for 144 days. There was 23 wins and 8 draws. They won the Ashes 4-0 with one draw. I mean, you're talking about travelling all across the country in 1948. You're talking about having travelled from Australia. You're talking about having a small touring party. You know, you're only talking 14, 15 players. There wasn't the scope to... You know, bring in injury replacements. You had those players. You had have to then, you know, make do and mend. And they were an amazing team. This was Donald Bradman's last tour. And I, I've constantly mentioned that his average is ninety nine point nine four, and how important it is. And I think to to the best way really to conclude talking about Donald Bradman is his final innings. So coming into the final innings, final test match at the Oval, and he needs four runs in his last innings to guarantee that his average would be 100 and above. And he gets LBW for naught, leg before wicket. And just the shock goes around the ground. Everyone was coming to see this genius, this amazing, seminal legend, finally end his international career. And having been part of this Invincibles, this team that has gone undefeated for month after month, with the expectation that he's going to have one last great innings and that you were going to be there to witness it. And all he would need is a measly four runs, just one scoring stroke that would get him there to sporting immortality. And just the palpable shock that he was going to fall just short, leaving us with just the the most tantalising thing to have come so close to immortality, to perfection, to average a century which is just the, the, the gold standard of cricket. There's something very human about that. It's just that you could think of when you could have got four runs at any point in, in his career, in all the decades that he'd played Test Match cricket. I find it personally wonderfully poignant. You know, going back to 
for Babe Ruth. I think one of the... Because we know that the Bradman's record averaged 99.94. will never be beaten. I, I just can't imagine a world in which a modern cricketer would be able to do that. With Babe Ruth and the chase for 715 home runs and beyond, well, that record has been broken twice. One of the things that is so important about these mythological milestone numbers is that the people that tend to break these records are rarely thanked for it. And it's interesting to really look into why. And I think because part of it is because these people become larger than life and so foundational, so legendary that anything that seeks to lessen that to feels almost like an assault on the legend and assault on the sport itself. For example, with you know, Babe Ruth had the all-time record for most home runs in the season, 60. It's a wonderful, beautifully round number. And in the early 60s, you had Mickey Mantle, who was this iconic, blonde, tall, Oklahoman switch hitter playing at Yankee Stadium, the, you know, the house that Ruth built. And had he broken the record, I think he would have got some level of, you know, a prorium for it. But at the same time, there would have been a sense of, you know, him carrying the legacy. But he never quite got there. And there was one year where it was him and his teammate Roger Maris who were both going for the record. And it became really a sort of soundtrack of that summer was was one of them going to finally beat the record who was going to do it now with Maris he wasn't as popular as Mickey Mantle and in an era where the batting average was you know the, the key integer for baseball excellence his numbers were always sort of 230 240 250 he was more of a sort of power hitter and as a result, and because he wasn't particularly as popular in the media as Mantle, he wasn't quite as, I suppose, photogenic, and wasn't quite as well suited to the spotlight and the glare of New York, is that people end up really putting a huge amount of pressure on him. The sense of people just not wanting him to break this sacred record, and that the person doing so was kind of slightly awkward that wasn't a particularly great hitter, but a fantastic power hitter. And the role of the commissioner, who had been you know, a huge baseball, you know, a huge Babe Ruth fan, had been his ghostwriter. And eventually he decides that because the of expansion, the league was going to 162 games, that for the record to officially count, Maris would have to hit number 61 before 154 games. Despite the fact that, you know, Babe Ruth played an era of segregation, um, you know, in East Coast sport without as much travelling and, you know, not playing at night under lights. 
effectively it was just a way of and they said even if you know you had hit 61 but in let's say game 162 there'd be an asterisk on it and the and a decent amount of the general sporting public were supportive of that you know despite its ridiculousness and eventually Maris broke the record but not within 154 games that Ruth would have played after, you know, between 154 and 162 games. And eventually, after a few years, that asterisk was taken away because it was, you know, functionally ridiculous. But it shows you just how important these legends are, your Bradmans, your Babe Ruths, and how they, they need Hall of Fames. And that the... And that the general public, the sporting public, and the fans themselves need these locations. They need a bricks and mortar Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. They need old Yankee Stadium. They need Lord's Cricket Ground. They need these places that that link us to these foundational players. You know that they act as the exception that proves the rule to the Whig school of thought. If you were to take the you know, history as constant progression to the sunlit uplands of the future, then all sports history would fundamentally exist as an imperfect, impermanent barrier to the, you know, to the future, which is going to be implicitly better. And you, that can't be true. You need moments of history that are larger than the game itself. You need, you know, Babe Ruth hitting all those home runs despite being a pitcher. I mean, look, the point is, is that Willie Mays was a better fielder, a better base runner. You know, he played brilliant ball in New York City. In some ways, he can be considered a better all-round player than the Babe. Although, you know, Willie Mays hit six hundred and sixty home runs, Babe Ruth hit seven fourteen. But the point is, no matter how brilliant Willie Mays is. He was never a Hall of Fame level pitcher, nor can you really become so. Even Shoshi Otani, who's a great, you know, who was a great power hitter in Japan and a great pitcher in Japan, who's now moved over and playing for the um, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, he can emulate Babe Ruth's achievement in the short term. But no modern player can ever change the destiny of the sport in the way that Ruth did from transitioning to pitching to being uh, an outfielder and to help bring in the live ball era, home runs, all of these amazing records. I think one of the, and this is a, a difficult one really to, to caveat, the first person to break Babe Ruth's record for most home runs, 714, the man who hit 715 was uh, Hank Aaron, who was a... Uh, He'd originally started his career in the Negro Leagues, was a, and he did it while playing for um, the Atlanta Braves, a team based in the Deep South. Now, there's a wonderful bit of commentary done by, by Vin Scully, who was doing the commentary for that game. And there'd been a huge amount of um, interest, and the country was following to see when he was going to break this. And Atlanta wanted him to do it at home. They wanted the big night, you know, full stadium, 
you know, just the symbolism of doing it at home. And so they were going to basically um, put him on the bench on the road. And the commissioner said, nope, you cannot do that. You cannot jimmy it. You have to play him or else you'll get fined. Yeah, and just the hammer would come down. And luckily he didn't hit the home run. And finally he hits this home run. Now, this is a seminal moment. This record that many people would thought would never get broken has been broken. So Scully puts down the microphone, goes to the back of the commentary room, pours himself out some commentary box, pours out some coffee, takes a couple of sips, puts the coffee back down. And then goes on, thinks about what he's going to say, and then comes up with this magical bit of commentary. You know, effectively saying that, you know, how amazing it is for this sacred home run record to be broken by a black man playing for a team in the, the deep south. Now the thing is, is that there were people who didn't want him to break the record because Ruth was such a legend. And Hank Aaron is a legend, but it's... An accumulatory kind of legend. So in other words, he wasn't someone who hit 60 home runs. His skill was essentially, as I said, with if you were trying to break Cy Young's record. You can get to 715 home runs if you were to hit 40 home runs virtually every single year, pretty much from your early 20s to your early 40s. And that's pretty much what he did. But it was just simply metronomic. Which makes him still one of the greatest baseball players of all time, but not quite as legendary as the way how Babe Ruth did it. But obviously, the elephant in the room of that is that so many people didn't want you know, Babe Ruth's record to be broken, and they definitely didn't want it to be broken you know, by a black guy, an African-American. You know, that racism was still prevalent in the you know, early 70s. And... As much as, you know, once this you've listened to this podcast, go ahead and watch the, the YouTube highlights with Vin Scully's commentary of the home run. It's amazing. It's seminal. One of the, the sort of unintentionally special moments of it is that uh, some fans streamed onto the field and there was a couple of white guys that basically followed, you know, in just joy, absolute ecstasy, followed Hank Aaron around the bases as, you know, he got the home run and you see at the end of it his mum comes out and gives him this just big hug and it's such a beautiful moment you know of everyone coming together everyone celebrating you have Scully doing this brilliant bit of commentary and yet it's actually slightly tinged with sadness because the reason his mother was hugging him so tightly is that she was petrified that he was going to be assassinated and that in her mind she was going to take the bullet for him because he had huge amounts of threat. There was National Guard because it was the South because he'd had so many threats in you know, the post, you know, on the phone, that, that there was no guarantee that this was going to go off without a hitch. And it did, and it's become a moment of history, but it always has to be caveated with that, that as much as we'd like to look at it now, as this wonderful thing at the time it was far more it was far more fraught and had that element of danger that should never have happened in 1970s America and shows a timely reminder that the insidiousness of, of racism so to conclude 
Battle Ball Sports fundamentally rely on their historical and cultural appeal to the general public. The evocative images that we all have in our minds of what cricket is and what baseball is and what they should be, in some ways it is always based on an image that are constructs on an imagined past. So in other words, you, you know, for a lot of cricket fans, they imagine cricket on the village green. You know, it is kind of pastoral, or they think back to sort of the Victorian era, WDG Grace smashing runs at, at the Oval, or they think of you know packed crowds politely you know clapping another century for Bradman. And in baseball, you you have this image, let's say of. 1950s baseball in New York City, you know, the Giants battling against the Dodgers, you know, for the right to play the Yankees in the World Series, in the Subway World Series, or to look back on the, the, the first moments of baseball. So the idea of, you know, mid-Victorian, you know, men on a Sunday playing game on the village green for cricket or playing in the pasture that's been, you know, and a break between harvests. Some of it is real, some of it is imagined. You know, baseball wasn't actually, in many ways, created out in the prairies. It wasn't in the farms and the fields, you know, in the rural parts. It was really something that was the Elysian fields in New Jersey. It was basically, you know, city boys of a weekend going out into the you know, local park across the river and playing this game. And in many ways, the cricketing thing of, you know, with the colonial side of it, has a dark side to it. Is that the reason why this game is played is because of empire and because of all of the negativity and all of the horrors that came from, you know, one culture dominating another. <laughs> but it's undeniable that cricket and baseball's root appeal is in their constancy in an ever-changing world. The sense that the beginnings of the sport from the 17th century children's games gives them a larger and more important role in the concept of national self-identity, as in many ways it predates it. Therefore, the growth and development of these sports becomes entwined with the creation of the national identity in a way that you know association football soccer and american football are now far more popular than cricket and baseball yet these are cultural constructs of a defined edwardian society in other words the society was there and how they used their leisure time and what their views on sports and are shown in football and American football. So in other words, American football, there's a huge amount of sort of element of muscular Christianity. In other words, when you know, people started dying from the game because of its dangers, these young men throwing themselves headfirst at each other, you know, on college campuses, on high schools, and there was this element, this threat of moral panic that the game was going to be outlawed. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, President Roosevelt, 
gets involved and basically tries to create some rules so that this game can continue because of its, you know, in his mind and the minds of the people that played it, this was important. This was something that would strengthen our young men. And in the same way that football was a way of bringing, you know, so, you know societies together. Getting people on a Saturday, supporting their local team, having the local businessmen own it. And it's, you know, you know to put glory to the you know, local area and pride in your local area. And that you, you'd play football on a Saturday afternoon, then you'd go watch the game. as a way of just keeping people together and bringing people together. And yet, these figures in Babe Ruth and Donald Bradman so much larger and so much more important in the way how in the way how we view our history and how we view sports and the numbers that they represent in these mythological milestone numbers and the importance of noting that down in history and noting that down in these special places Lords, Cooperstown because they serve this wonderful purpose of linking the past, the present, and the future. Right? To celebrate the best moments of the past. To reconcile the worst parts of our past. Slavery, segregation, colonialism, empire. In a way that's not accusatory. In a way that is trying to build bridges in a way that's trying to bring us all together to to have a sense of wonder in what 99.94 means what 714 means in how a small diminutive rural Australian who was focused who was professional and who was a genius was able to to dominate to dominate and push the sport on to an unimaginable level every single person that ever picks up a cricket bat and tries to play this game has the same opportunity to try and get those extra four runs to try and end with a career average of a hundred that is the that is the mountaintop that the next generation, the next professionals will always have to live up to. And that the son of an Irish innkeeper who spent his youth in a reform school, who dominated on the mound, who then dominated the at bat in the batter's box. And did unimaginable achievements. Helped build a dynasty. Helped build a sport. And that both of these completely different figures. One tall, one short. One a party animal. Have left marks on these. And achievements on their respective sports. That will last forever. In the sense of in the imagination of new fans to the sport is the most wonderful thing.
wonderful achievement. The fact that these people really need a Hall of Fame to give you the opportunity for fresh generations to be able to celebrate, to memorialise and to really and to share in the mythology of these unimaginable achievements. Thank you for listening.